Welcome everyone to the video podcast for Security Magazine sponsored by Sajax. Today, I've got Lisa Forte from Red Goat and I've got Philip Ingram from Grey Hair Media. And we're gonna start off with a really important topic because The Economist has said, and all of the Parrot publications have said 2024 is gonna be the biggest year for elections ever. Now, that's exciting. But as anyone who has followed, and you can subscribe to our video podcast, they certainly know that elections are an opportunity for disinformation, tampering, all of those great things. Mm -hmm. Lisa, what do you see as being some of the pivotal elections that are going to happen in 2024? Well, obviously, the one I think we're all the most excited for is Russia has its presidential election in March. Mm-hmm. So we don't know which way that's going to go. That <laughs> be, I think that could go any way, really. Yeah, really. So yeah, the, the opposition are really strong and they're putting up a good case from what I can see at the moment. What's kind of crazy is the last time they held an election, I think they had a turnout of around 70%, which is unbelievable. That seems It's high. almost unbelievable. Almost I mean, unbelievable. I'm not doubting it, but I'm just saying. Yeah. And he won with, I think, 78% of the vote, mm. which is also pretty impressive. Good did, for him. When did, did, 70% turned out, yeah, he so won with 78%. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, a, a, a really important thing happened in global politics exactly 10 days before the last Russian presidential election. <clears throat> that was when Sergei Skripal, uh, the attack against him was put in in the sleepy little hollow of Salisbury. You mean when he got sick on a plane? When, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, that was that, the other that guy. Was oh, oh, that was the so, guy who got sick Sir, in the cathedral. Sergei <laughs> Skripal and his, and his daughter were poisoned um, in the sleepy little hollow of Salisbury. Exactly right. 10 days before Vladimir Putin's um, last presidential connected. election. And um, there had been one or two oligarchs that were trying to create a little bit of uh, trouble for the election. And I think Vladimir Putin was saying to them, Please be quiet. Yes. I think Phil is completely off-piste with this. I yeah. think it was just a hands-down win, personally. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've noticed, though, that windows <clears throat> seem to be a perpetual problem for anyone that is not, you know, on board with the Putin program, as are apparently playing with hand grenades on airplanes. Yeah, so it happens. These, these are, I guess, more uh, electoral perils, if you will, than, than we've seen before. But there is one country that um, is projected to actually eclipse China in terms of population growth, mm-hmm. and that is India. Yeah. And that election is up to grabs, and it's really interesting from a geopolitical perspective. Um, Phil, who's India fighting right now, and what are their geopolitical concerns? Well, you know, there's the traditional India-Pakistan conflict that's going on. That, that seems to blow hot and cold, depending on how, how, how they want to play it. Um, but again, because you've got that traditional friction that's there, um, that can be manipulated by external players. Um, you've got India-China up in the uh, Himalayas, uh, and there's a constant battle going on there where the two armies are physically fighting at times, not, not using military weapons, but it's fisticuffs. Yes, I know, um, they drop gloves uh, on uh, ex- the ice. Ex- exactly. And, and that, <laughs> Hockey style. You know, that, that, that is just indicative of the... Um, the, the, the wider relationship that there is and, and the, the difficulties there are between India and China. Um, and then I think the, the biggest areas are, are India domestically you know, mm-hmm. because of the different factions that there are throughout India. And that's why the election is uh, up for grabs. And whoever gets in, there will be a massive power play. That power play will lead to a degree of internal conflict but again, you know, internal conflict with potential external um, factors that are coming in as well is sitting there for those countries that 
enjoy manipulating what's going on. It gives them a perfect opportunity, yet another opportunity. And I think that there's some real parallels to be drawn between India and Brazil. So Brazil a few years ago went through their elections. And that, I think, was a really interesting test of influence operations as well, because when Brazil went through their um, elections, uh, Meta at the time sort of said that they were putting it as a top priority and they were going to do all of this stuff. And there was a research group that thought they would test how well Meta's, um, I guess, controls over the content and advertising in particular in Brazil were going. And this group set up a load of adverts. They weren't pretending to be in Brazil, so their IP address wasn't located in Brazil or whatever. They submitted it to Meta's platform, and these adverts deliberately broke every single one of the rules that Meta had said for the, ad, the ads, right? Mm -hmm. Every single one got accepted, and every single one got posted into the Brazilian users' networks, yeah. right? Which I think asks, it's a really difficult and very important question to start to ask, because Brazil is a democracy, a massive population, a huge country that's growing exponentially. It's got some of the fastest growth in the world. India is very similar, right? They're both two really big powerhouses. So when they go through elections, I think there's a really profound uh, risk that their populations can be easily, potentially easily manipulated and swung through aggressive use of stuff. Not to mention, India has had some connections with helping Russia in this conflict. So you'd think Russia would have potentially quite a vested interest in this election, perhaps as much so as the US. Well, and you talk of manipulation, there's a science behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we heard of the Cambridge Analytica scandal a few years back. That's what came into the science. And there's been some fantastic research um, done in, uh, before the, the, the last major round of elections in, in, in 2017, looking at manipulative marketing and applying manipulative marketing techniques into political campaigns. Now, that in itself is fine because you know, that's what marketeers do. You're, you're advertising, you're selling. But combine that with the data that you can get from big data and analyzing how um, people think, and not just how individuals think, but how their first and second um, connections will think. You can then work out a way of um, manipulating what people are actually concerned about and not concerned about by targeting them specifically with these manipulative marketing campaigns, but where they can be targeted down to groups of individuals or given the power of our connectivity at the moment, they can be targeted down to the individual. Um, an individual's understanding of what is going on can be manipulated in a way they don't realize that they're being manipulated. Everyone will yeah. turn around and say, oh, I can never be manipulated. No, that's, that's wrong. People, people can be and are being We're manipulated. We're seeing that in Hungary at the moment, aren't we, with the yeah. polls that they're doing of their population where they're sort of saying, you know, oh, well, if the EU brought this in, how would you feel about it? And kind of Testing the up. waters, yeah. Yeah, but it looks like it's testing the waters, but actually what it's doing is stirring up hate and stirring yeah. up opinions. It, and it's working emotions. You know, from, from a cyber perspective, you're, you're attacking the ultimate computer. Uh, you're attacking the human brain. Right. Um, and the human brain uh, is run by you know, a number of different chemical reactions that are going on in there. So you know, you've got, you've got um, your serotonins and your other feel-good um, chemicals that are operating in the brain that, that manipulate the way you think. And the marketeers understand perfectly how to mm -hmm. make, make someone feel better, feel more included, um, re get reinforced in, the, in their, their beliefs, um, undermine things that they're potentially sitting on the, on the fence about. And this is where people who are doing the big data analysis are sitting there going, ah, right, how do we, how do we change the way people are thinking? You're 100% on target because um, there was a study done, I think it was by MIT, 
MIT a couple of years ago that suggested that it only took about 10 website uh, cookie templates to be able to put you into a cohort. When you add demographic data that mm -hmm. is already out there from you know, the, the data scrapers uh, and whatnot, you can get a pretty good profile of a person, whether they're receptive to more uh, right-wing conservative content or liberal democratic content. I want to talk a little bit specifically about India and Pakistan because um, both I would call tier three cyber actors well on their way to become yeah. tier two cyber actors. Um, there's the potential that Pakistan may try to interfere with the Indian election. There's uh, the potential that India <clears throat> will project power, but we don't know where it's landing. What do you think? Do you think that cyber is going to play a decisive role in the Indian election? Uh, go ahead, Lisa. So I think in all of the upcoming elections, and just to throw Mongolia in there, they're also having an election in 2024, I'm just going to say. Well, it's all very, you know, eyes on Mongolia. Um, but there's elections all over the world. And I think India is obviously a really important one. I think my concern is that where we were a few years ago with these really big, important elections, we didn't have control over social media at all. It was running amok, essentially. Now we're in a situation where tech companies have had huge layoffs. So they have plausibly even less ability to moderate content than they did back then when they still didn't do a good job. Indeed, like X is being called out for it. Meta. Uh, Facebook, Meta is being called out for it and totally. fined for it. Yeah. And, and, and TikTok isn't doing anything to try and manipulate <coughs> what people are thinking either. No. no, that's right. Very clean, very, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then on top of all of that, we've got AI companies who I think yeah. are even yeah. less equipped than yeah. social media companies to deal with it. And I think we've got a perfect storm brewing because I think at the very, you've got two aspects, especially with AI and deep fakes. And this is again, plausible for India. They have a huge amount of consumption of online. Um, they're hugely online. Content, yep. And you know, it's not a situation now where you have it going through channels. It's literally accessible potentially to everybody. I think it's, I think AI companies and social media companies haven't really thought through how they're going to do it in terms of like, for example, kill switches. Like if we've lost control of um, content on a specific part of our platform, let's say Instagram Reels, can we pull that entire surface out from the Indian population to preserve their elections? And should we do that? Yeah. I think is one question. Um, but I also think that these AI companies are not just not equipped um, from a governance perspective, let alone how they actually run and manage the, the platforms mm -hmm. that they operate to police the situation. Yeah. And I think we're in a really dangerous territory because it would be so easy. And as you've spoken about, you work out what the issues are that get you going, oh, I'm really angry about that or whatever. And we know that anger motivates people a lot to vote in a specific way. Very easy to do when the society is built on very conservative elements, mm -hmm. but also um, folks that want to liberalize things. And you have that polarity, oh, yeah, which sure. leads to internal. Phil, the question I have for you, do you think, and it's sort of like pick your own poison here, um, nationalistic Indian government in 2024 post-election, pro-West or pro-East? Where, where do you think the, it, it's going to land? I, I think whichever government gets in, whenever they get in and realize what's going on around the world, and we're, we're seeing this in your Indian longer-term military procurement, they're recognizing that there's a growing threat in Southeast Asia and in the Indian Ocean region all the rest of it, which is why they are trying to get into the blue water power projection capability to counter what's happening 
with a lot of the other countries that, that are working in that area. Because effectively, by, by population size, you know, they should be the biggest influence that, that there is in the region. And they're beginning to realize that. So whichever government gets in, they will see um, that they need to pivot that way. And they'll be very carefully looking at um, who they should play with. I think what's been going on um, between uh, Russia and Ukraine and you know, traditionally India has been um, a purchaser of an awful lot of Russian military equipment. Uh, I think anyone who's been a purchaser of Russian military equipment is seeing how badly it's doing. Um, and they're also seeing that the supply chain, the, the longer term supply chains just don't exist anymore. You know, yeah. Russia can't afford to do that. So India is going to have to look elsewhere for its military capability and upgrade its military capability. Um, who are the other players that are out there? You know, Korea. It, it, yeah. it, it, could, it could potentially look so, into Korea. South Korea has been mm -hmm. supplying the Polish army. <clears throat> well, exa exactly. So, so Korea is a big player that's in there. Um, but you, you're going to see a massive play by the United States and all the rest of it to try and you know, get the United States into this um, uh, this market area that Russia has now been kicked out of because they've been proved that their, their stuff is useless. We'll put a flag in that for a moment because you said the magic words, which is the second part or the second topic that we were going to cover, which is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, uh, Phil Ingram dropped a wonderful podcast um, on a Russian update at the tactical level. We're, you know, if you're interested in that, please, we'll post the link on on mm -hmm. on our uh, video podcast to that because it's a great summary of what's going on. But looking into 2024, um, are we going to be able to decisively say there's a winner or there's a loser? Or, you know, does the West abandon potentially Ukraine? Phil? In one word answer, winner or loser, no, we're not going to be able to say that um, because the, the conflict that's going on between Russia and Ukraine is so complex from a military perspective and a geopolitical perspective. From a military perspective at the tactical level, the layers of defences, the Suvorican line that the Russians have put in place, uh, that the uh, Ukrainians are trying to punch through to capture those areas back again are stronger than anything we have ever seen in any conflict ever before. And they're covered by indirect fire and most of them are covered by direct fire um, as well, which is how defenses should be. And the Russians are manning them um, and they're, they're managing to hold those defenses. Um, where there are potential holes coming into them, the Russians are firing thousands and thousands and thousands of people at them and it's turning into a, a mincing machine effectively. You know, if you look up around um, Avdivka, um, the Russians are losing 900 to 1200 soldiers a day. Um, they're losing 10 to 15 tanks a day, 10 to 15 artillery pieces a day. Um, this 10, is World War II numbers. These, these are World War II. And this is, this is one little bit on you know, what's almost a 600 kilometer Front, front line, and the Russians are having a little bit of success. They're, they're, they're capturing tens of meters as they go forward, but um, part of that could be because the Ukrainians are allowing them to do so that they throw more untrained troops in, uh, and, they, and they just get slaughtered. They, you know, they are being slaughtered. Um, and therefore, from a tactical perspective, um, up until, I say, June, July next year, we're not gonna see any, any massive changes. From an operational perspective and a strategic perspective, the strategic bit I'll talk on first, a lot of that will go around the um, Russian presidential election. Vladimir Putin will want to try and achieve something will, yeah. before the election and something decisive before the election so that he can sell that to his internal population. 
I don't think he's got the wherewithal to achieve that without doing something daft. And I don't know what that daft would be. He's only got till be. March. March he's, is he's, the election. It's exa not exactly. that long. And, and the ground um, <clears throat> is not going to be strong enough for there to be major armoured manoeuvre. He's not going to be able to capture big bits of territory, no matter what he's what orders he's given his generals. So he's going to have to do something else. That, that's, that's a demonstration to say, I am still strong and I'm still in charge. And I don't want to speculate on that because there's no indicators to suggest what it would be. The area that's going to have most effect from the Ukrainian perspective is this operational level. And the operational level are the, the bits that are enabling um, the tactical level operations to happen. Um, and what I mean by that are um, the logistic elements, the aviation elements, the air elements that uh, Russia's got in Crimea, in Russia itself, um, uh, and in the rear areas of the, the, the captured territories around, around the Donbass. Um, and this is where um, we also look at the Black Sea Fleet and we look at Russia's strategic bomber capability and everything else. Um, and then we look at Russia, Russia's domestic manufacturing um, and critical national infrastructure capability. And this is where the Ukrainians are concentrating the majority of their effort. Yeah. Um, and I think between now and June, July of next year, we're going to see a massive increase in that. And we're already starting to get indications of it <clears throat> where railway lines are um, being blown up. There was just a, a major tunnel that was part of the logistics chain that was targeted China, by special forces. Exactly, yeah. between, between China and, and this is Special Operations Executive, Second World War SOE type operations. We're going to see more drone attacks, I think, against Russian cities and Russian critical national infrastructure because Ukraine will take the fight to the Russians. This will have the effect of really um, winding Vladimir Putin up even more because he will not want that in the run up to the election. The Ukrainians are... They're, 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 the advancements in their drone production, their drone capability is phenomenal. I know some Ukrainian companies are doing this, and we, we haven't begun to see what they've done yet. Your Ukraine, with no navy, has forced the Russians effectively out of their Black Sea port in Sevastopol, um, across to mainland, mainland Russia, and sunk more capital ships than uh, since were sunk during the Falklands War. Um, and that's good for a country with no navy. Um, and with the, with, with, with the, with the increase, um, uh, Western weapon systems, long-range we weapon systems. Ukrainians have taken the Russian artillery from overmatching the Ukrainians in numbers by a large factor to parity, and they're going to reduce that even further. They're attacking air defense systems that the Russians have got at the moment. When those air defense systems go down, once the Ukrainians get their F-16s, then if the air defense isn't there for the Russians, the F-16s will be able to remove any aviation uh, uh, and air threat that uh, the Russians have got, that will start to become a game changer. So at that operational level, what um, the Ukrainians are doing is hollowing out the Russians from behind. That means that you know, this really strong tactical wall that's stopping any advancement um, is losing its foundation. Any wall that loses its foundation um, is in for uh, an easier collapse. And this is where I think summer next year, we'll see a <coughs> massive push from the Ukrainians to do that, and that's why we're going to see a massive effort, I think, during the winter months to continue to hollow out that, that, that operational level, that, that supporting level that's in there. Um, because what the Ukrainians will want to do is make sure that they have got something more decisive on the ground. They've got a, a greater level of momentum and are taking more territory back before the US presidential elections, which we haven't mentioned yet. And we're going to mention that in, in another segment at the end of this. But... Lisa, cyber operations then, if we have sit-street right now <coughs> between Russian forces and Ukrainian forces, with Ukraine basically, as Phil said, hollowing out the back, what are the Russian 
affiliated and and cyber forces going to be doing, do you think? Well, I would say that in contrast to the military, the Russian hacktivist groups are doing exceedingly well. Yeah. And actually, we've seen a complete, almost a complete opposite image. So in February 2022, when this happened, to be honest, it was disorganized. The hacktivists weren't very skilled. They didn't have many resources. From then till now, we've seen some of the biggest DDoS attacks we've ever seen in history. We've seen Microsoft be taken down by Killnet, which was just unbelievable. Like, no one thought that would happen. We've seen collaboration between groups that we never thought would happen, which has led to really, really dangerous attacks on organizations that you wouldn't thought would have a vulnerability to it. Um, and I think also we started to see them using AI um, to power attacks and things like that. And actually, I would say from the hacktivist side of things, and I do concede that there's a lot of very, very large question marks as to how much control the Russian government actually does or doesn't have over these hacktivist groups. We right. can't speculate on that. Um, but from a pro-Russian stance, which is where these groups are coming from, whether they're Russian or not, we can't, we can't comment. Um, I would say they're doing spectacularly well. And that will pose a really big problem for a lot of organizations, um, especially, I think, 2024, we will see those groups asserting a lot of pressure on key organizations around the world to try yeah. and persuade governments to stop financing Ukraine. And I think that's the, that's the whole goal. Um, some of their attacks have been kind of shock and awe. Like, I think Killnet took down the Royal Family's website, and it's a kind of a bit of a laugh and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. But I think there have been some really damaging attacks. And I think they are targeting organizations in a very strategic manner to apply maximum pressure on governments to stop financing Ukraine. So I think it's really interesting because as the Ukraine try to hollow out the logistics supply chain for Russia, the Russian cyber forces are attempting to hollow out the will yeah. and the support 100%. for Ukraine. Yeah, 100%. A fascinating dynamic. And then, of course, we're into the new war. Um, <laughs> war. Hamas, Israel, with Palestinians caught in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. All sorts of machinations going on from yeah. Saudi Arabia trying to take a stance on this and, and still trying to pursue a detente situation with Iran. I guess we're trying to talk about the future. What is 2024 going to bring to that particular conflict? Phil. Oof, crikey. Um, let's solve the Middle East in 2024. Uh, no chance. You know, we, we, <laughs> under, Zero percent. Underpinning everything in the Middle East, we've still got a centuries-old civil war between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Full stop. Right. Uh, it's been complicated by uh, the fact that you know, a number of civil servants in London, Paris, Berlin and elsewhere um, at the beginning of the 20th century sat down with maps that were all sandy coloured and drew straight lines with rulers and said we're going to create this country and create that country and everything else. Um, but that's why we are where we are. Um, you know, <coughs> the West has caused a lot of the problems that are in there. Um, and we're starting to see your diplomacy beginning to try and unpick some of that and um, to, to bring solutions to it. And we had that with the thawing of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, just before the 6th of October. Um, uh, and uh, it, that was the last sort of safe day. And Hamas came in and pushed all of that back um, for a, a, a period of time, that's an, an undefinable period of time with their attacks into Israel on the 7th of October. Um, and 
you, Israel will still be trying to clear up. Um, you, they've stated their aim is the complete <coughs> destruction of Hamas. You can't destroy an ideology, um, and there can't be a long-term solution unless um, you've got more than just what we saw with humanitarian pauses um, on the ground, which were you know, very, very short-term, focused about hostage release and humanitarian relief coming in and prisoner release. Um, unless there's some form of negotiating position for a longer-term solution, and that longer-term solution isn't for next year, this is a permanent longer-term solution, unless you get that on the table, that all sides are willing to use that as a foundation to build the negotiations on, you've got nothing. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen no evidence, as at the time we're recording this, um, it may have come out by the time we publish it, but I've seen no evidence of that position being put out there. And Hamas, you know, Hamas's stated aim is still the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of every Jew. Yeah, That's they, not a good start point to negotiate from. Yeah, neither group has really uh, has really um, changed their overall strategic outcome, for sure. Um, from the cyber perspective, Lisa, what are we seeing? Are we still seeing mass disinformation campaigns? Has, has the contagion spread? Or is it sort of now, you know, background noise? Yeah, it's um, so at the date where they agreed the release of the hostages, the hacktivist community largely agreed to cease activity, which to date they largely have um, to honor the sort of that particular ceasefire. Now, obviously, and probably predictably, that ceasefire will crumble and end, and then back will go again. Um, at the time of recording, that's the sort of situation we're in. What's really interesting, though, is Iran in this. Nice. And so I've been, I've been fascinated by Iran for a number of years. And um, Iran has, I think, poses the most danger in this situation of everybody. And the reason for that is they are extremely self-controlled, self-disciplined, and they know when to act and when not to act. And we've seen this before. So Israel... Um, just before the US, last US presidential elections, um, just before Trump um, got out, Israel went in in a very provocative way into Iran and killed people in Iranian That's territory. Right. Something yeah. which every country in the world would absolutely lose their mind over if that happened to you. And I suspect, my suspicion is, they did that hoping that Iran would retaliate. America would get involved before Biden came in, so under the Trump administration. Where right. Iran didn't do that. They did no. absolutely nothing. And they said, no, OK, well, that's what you've done. We're not doing anything. And this is something we see from Iran a lot. They're very, very good at going, I know what you're trying to do. We're not going to do that. We're going to play on our terms. And I yeah. think that's what makes them so dangerous. Mm. Microsoft, for instance, has said that they don't think there was any evidence that Iran knew about the Hamas attack. Because if we look at the cyber activities from Iran, nothing happened for basically two weeks after that Hamas attack uh, happened. And we, we suspect that the reason for that is they actually weren't prepared yeah. to go in. Yeah. And That's so they had that two-week lead time to kind of go, OK, well, we can optimize this and let's go after Israel which they didn't do. So I don't know that they actually had any involvement in that. What's really interesting, though, is Iran is very, um, from my perspective, from a cyber perspective, they're incredibly capable, which is largely down to US and Israel actions, which is a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> yes. But they're very, very, very capable. They've probably got one of the biggest and most sophisticated national cyber armies in the world, combined with highly, highly educated, talented APCs. I mean, Iran has the highest number of people, I think, in the world who've been through university, like per, per capita, right? Um, 
And I think one of the things that's really interesting is Iran, no matter what happens, are very on target. So they go after Israel and they go after the United States. And that's basically their scope. Once in a while, I think their proxies, you know, take a poke at like Saudi Arabia just for for stir them up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But I think that's what makes them really dangerous. And I think what will be a big determining factor in how involved they get. And I think if they get involved, things could get very dangerous for the United States. So are you saying 2024, Iran kind of takes a backseat or they become a bit more provocative? I think if the United States gets involved in any capacity in that area, you will see Iran get involved. And I think for the United States, that's the first time really in history, and I know we've spoken about this before, where the US actually has to worry about its actions because Iran can exert quite a lot of damage into onto US soil through the cyber landscape. I, I agree. And that also is a great segue because yeah. you brought up the magic word that I think is on the minds of every nation out there, which is the American presidential election and campaign. Yeah. So um, I'm going to start with you on the cyber dimension to this and the disinformation that is going to be vomited upon us. Yeah, I think the thing is, it's coming back to that first conversation that we had, even regarding India, really. I think we're very, very, very vulnerable to manipulation and influence operations by whoever, because let's be honest, China, Iran, Russia... I mean, even countries in South America who are very not very happy with the United States. Canada. Yeah, maybe. maybe. The Italians, (laughs) the Italians are in there probably. Um, But but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot at stake for sure, and um, it's sort of like if you can do something to stack the the odds in your favor, and you can't get caught for it, and there's no attribution, and no one knows what's going on. Why wouldn't you? You've got the most powerful economy, the only navy capable of, uh, shall we say, inflicting peace for trade on the high seas, really the only credible navy that can cover the globe with its capabilities. And then there's a question of who's going to be their leader of the U.S.? Well, Can I just ha- ask one question, yeah, uh, yeah. which you guys both will have a better opinion of than I will. Don't you think it could be interesting that Russia will inevitably want one side to win the election, but China is going to want the other side to win the election? Because Xi Jinping went to San Francisco, met with Biden. That's right. Um, as, at least publicly, looked yeah. like there was some level of kind of giving ground. Yep. It's not going to be in his interest for Trump, for example, is it? Because no. Trump was definitely not a friend well, of China. Part of, part of Trump's whole strategy is to say China bad. Right, exactly. Right, and his, so, so is this really China versus Russia? With America as the proxy. Well, and, and, and you know, look at America as the proxy. I think the one factor that we haven't brought out is that probably one of the most naive and therefore manipulable populations in the world is America, mm-hmm. uh, the American population. Um, and, uh, and you can start to see indications of the vote, yeah, the influence vote being manipulated as we speak. Look at you know, the only European country that politically in what's going on, uh, politically domestically in what's going on with the Israel-Hamas um, conflict is out of step with every other European country, and that's Ireland. 
Right. Because you get the Irish are, uh, there's an awful lot of support going out um, for the Palestinian people, which is right and proper because they're being oppressed. But the underlying hint from, you know, certainly Sinn Féin, um, who are on the ascendancy in Ireland is that you know that support is for those that are fighting for the Palestinian people, whether they be Hamas, Hezbollah, or yeah. the Palestinian Authority, or, or 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 anything else, because they they see similarities between you know, the provisional IRA, Sinn Féin, and elsewhere. But if you look at that from an American perspective, um, it's no accident that the second largest Russian embassy in Europe is in Dublin, right? From an American perspective, who's got a massive influence on the U.S. domestic vote, the Irish-American vote? Right. And, and, therefore, and, therefore, and therefore, you're the getting in there. Um, Joe Biden was traditionally um, and is traditionally an Irish supporter, but he's come out very publicly in support of Israel, completely against what the Irish um, uh Position, position yeah, is on it from that. from you know their their up and coming political parties, mm-hmm. and, and that's the first time ever we've seen this separation in views between Joe Biden, very pro Irish republicanism, and the Irish republican movements that there are elsewhere. And I would argue that there's a real potential that a lot of this is being stirred because of the influence that it will have on the Irish American vote. You know, we will see that manipulation. It's not going to happen six weeks before the election or two weeks before the election. It started already, and it started a couple of years ago. So we'll see it building up to a crescendo. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is one of those build-ups that's there. And we're going to see an awful lot more. Um, And whenever, and I come back to the naivety of a population, when you've got a naive population and they're getting fed everything in through their little mobile devices that are coming in there, and they will only go into the channels that are the ones that are feeding them what they want to hear because that's good and they will only um, follow their friends and those other people on the social media channels giving them what it is that they want to hear and they block all the others they then generate this self-misinforming groupthink as i call it and mm-hmm. um, where they're being fed only the stories that are reinforcing something that um, may be politically skewed or not quite true and that makes it a uh, such a fantastic opportunity for those that can sit and analyze this from a big data perspective, bring in artificial analysis, um, or sorry, artificial intelligence to work out how you then begin to manipulate um, some of the messaging that's going in there. Or demobilize as well, because remember, yeah. it's not necessarily um, in the in the Trump election, which was heavily spoken about with the Cambridge Analytica situation. It wasn't necessarily swinging you to vote for Trump. It was demobilizing you so you don't vote for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. can have the same effect yeah. and is easier. Text to do. messages saying election day is has been moved. Um, you know, election, the, the poll that you should go to. Oh, it's, all, other all, one. it's all a fraud. Yeah, there's no point. Yeah. Why why go out? Why waste your time and going and voting in this? Because there's no point. Exactly. It's, it's, all, it's all been yeah, pre-decided. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and everything. And we, we, we've seen that beforehand. And I think we're going to see that with all of the elections around the world writ large. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the major player behind it of all of them, I think, will be Russia. Yeah. And it could easily turn into this Russia-Chinese yeah. spat. Um, as to who's trying to uh, control it. Because from a (coughs) geopolitical perspective, Western countries are thinking in presidential or prime ministerial or parliamentary cycles. Whereas Russia, China, Iran, 
um, Saudi Arabia are, are thinking in multi-generational cycles. And let's cycles. not leave mm-hmm. you know, crazy North Korea out of this either because the guys Well, you always have to have really the, the, the little mad bad <laughs> child sitting there with a few nuclear weapons that might even stir things up even a bit more, being manipulated. And, and, he, and he is being manipulated by Iran and by Russia in particular because he's now seeing hard cash coming in, um, which he's getting from Russia for supplying them with thousands of container loads of weapons, because Russia can't, has, has lost its capacity to produce its own. Um, and we're seeing um, North Korean weapons turning up in Iran as well. So yep. that, that link is very clear and will get clearer. I want one piece that I think is really important, and Lisa's perfect for this because of her Hi. background. Hi. Um, <laughs> From the legal perspective now, given that Trump is facing all sorts of charges in state and federal um, thing, is he still a viable candidate in your mind or do you think he'll be locked up? It's very difficult because like you were just saying, in a sense, we're all pretty politically aligned for the most part. And I would like to say, yes, he'll be locked up. Of course he is. I believe in justice. I believe in justice being done. What I've learned over the last probably five to six years, or really since 2016, really, is that, that election. Yeah, that, that election um, is that actually what I think is a clear cut, this must be the situation, actually isn't. And really it comes yeah. down to what you were saying. Largely, that's because the people who I talk to are ex lawyers or whatever, the publications I read on that side of the spectrum. And so my belief system is, well, there's absolutely no way he won't go to jail and there's absolutely no way he's going to be elected as the president. Yeah, actually, the past five years has taught me he's probably going to be president in January 2025. Okay, so that's your call. (laughs) Uh, Phil, what do you think? Well, I I, I think, you know, there's who you want and then there's hopefully who you get. And this is where in a true democracy, you've got a separation of powers. You've got a separation of the judiciary from... Um, the legislator, um, and uh, we don't see that in the United States. You know, the, 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 the judiciary, the Supreme Court are all political appointees. Um, so that's, that's where there's real difficulty. And I think there, there's some very clever moves going on at the moment to try and make sure that um, if Trump gets prosecuted successfully, that he will go to jail. Because if there are federal prosecutions, he can pardon himself if he gets if elected he as president. Yeah. If they are um, state prosecutions, he can't. No. So if he gets found guilty in any of those. Now, where the law is on if he's um, prosecuted and found guilty under a, a state uh, legislation and put into state prison, if he still gets elected to uh, be president, where does that stand? And I think that's that's something that people just haven't thought mockery. of. And, uh, compl- I think it's mockery. like you but, know, m- mentioning democracy. It's like... <laughs> It's like Plato's Republic. <laughs> but, but <laughs> Just carries on and on we've, and we've, on. Yeah, we've, we've had that in the UK. We go back to the hunger strikers in Northern Ireland. You know, Bobby Sands was elected to the UK Parliament whilst he was on the hunger strike and in prison. Yeah. Um, and therefore, in, a, in democracy, this isn't anything new. It's very worrying when it comes to be the president of supposedly yeah. the, 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 the... No, well, as I said, Plato free people of the world. Yeah. called it. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a long time ago. Um, and, and who's sitting there um, rubbing his hands in glee with a very large glass of best Russian vodka over over ice and a white cat on his knee behind yeah. his big oak desk in Moscow? Vladimir Putin's going, yes, bring it on. It's really interesting because depending on who 
sort of comes into power. And we've heard about, you know, the latest poll had Biden slightly ahead of Trump. But, you know, all Trump needs to do is hold an impromptu um, press conference. His base comes out with money to continue to fund his legal effort, uh, you know, to, you know, potentially outspending what a state has in terms of like the war chest to prosecute criminals. It's not infinite, especially in some states which are suffering from economic downturns. But where I'm going with all of this is there's an opportunity, I think, in the United States to rise above all of this with the Republican Party essentially fracturing um, along those mega lines and something more moderate emerging out of that chaos to potentially push Biden out of the spot. What then becomes a really interesting play is, okay, say that happens and you get what Nikki Haley, who you said is rising really yeah. fast as, as, a, as a preferred Republican conservative, even though I don't think she's the strongest um, mind out there on the Republican side of the bench. But it becomes a very interesting scenario if the leader of the Republican Party is in jail while a Republican now sits as the president of the United States. Either way you cut it, if America continues to retreat from the world stage, yeah. right, we're in for anything can happen uh, like and, 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 and this is where there's another factor, and this is the conflict factor that is going to influence that. And it, it hasn't been played yet. Um, in U.S. domestic politics, um, the weapons that are being supplied to um, Ukraine and to um, Israel. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's saying, oh, we're, you, we're, we're hearing coming out of uh, the Trump camp, we're wasting billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayers' money on supplying weapons out um, and, into these bases. We'll stop doing that and we'll keep the money at home. Actually, who's making money out of the supply of weapons? It's domestic U.S. Yeah, right. manufacturing capability. And a lot of the weapons manufacturing, a lot of the defense manufacturing is in traditional Republican Very um, much so. uh, yeah. areas. And therefore, the Trump camp um, is going to potentially undermine all of this new taxpayers' dollar that's, that's, that's coming in. You know, the, the, the money that is going to Ukraine and to Israel on weapons is not. It's going into the U.S. economy because it's spending there. And that's, that's one of the best ways in a recession period to improve your own domestic economy. Invest your taxpayers' dollars back into your own country. Uh, and that, I think, will start to play out domestically. Russia won't like that. They'll try everything to undermine it. But I, I can see both the Democrats and the non-Trump Republicans playing that quite hard as we come up to the election. Awesome. Lisa, any sort of final thoughts about what the landscape of 2024 looks like? I think we've seen a massive shift in spheres of influence in the last couple of years, which are really interesting. The US has largely lost theirs for the most part, I think, certainly South America and a lot of the other areas as we've spoken about before, I think they've largely lost theirs. Russia has largely lost theirs yep. too, which is really interesting because that's two of the three superpowers yes. who yeah. are now not off the table, but are, are underneath the diminished. table, yeah. diminished. diminished. And I think that that will change things in the next few years yeah. quite substantially. And I'm not sure they've now got the ability to either country, either Russia nor America, to get that back. Yeah, yeah. And, and the EU is... Uh, fracturing itself uh, and oh, yeah. uh, and is is less coherent than it has been. So that's that suggests that the analysis of a few years ago of a Southeast Asian pivot is um, is, what we're, is, is, is mm -hmm. what we're seeing. I think so too. 
Well, there you have it. The 2024 drop in terms of what we think is going to happen across the globe and all of the exciting things. Um, so we'll see you um, again soon.